handmade products are held in high esteem in New York City, even in the midst of a society obsessed with efficiency and technology. An object made by hand is the result of countless hours of practice and experimentation. It's the fruit of someone's labor, and it comes from the heart of its creator. Good morning, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're getting our hands dirty, talking to local artisans and craftspeople who dedicate themselves to creating with their bare hands. Deborah Mills is a traditional woodcarver and artist. I recently caught up with her at our Long Island City studio. What kind of woodcarving do you do? I do architectural wood carving. Everything I do is custom, so it, it, it all depends on what the client wants, but I work with architects, so I've, I'm working on some architectural pieces right now that are orig my original design. What is that design? The design I'm working on now is, is a series of panels that will be fitted into a custom uh, headboard for a Brooklyn brownstone. The architect designed the, the, this bedstead and I'm doing a series of sea monsters and mermaids and Amphitrite and, and, and uh, Neptunes for these panels. I can show you a picture yeah. of what they are. Here's the architect's original design, and here you see I've started doing my designs as sketches and maquettes and fitting them in, and I've got other panels that are coming, but... So you just sketch it out, then you make it by hand. The, a lot of the process of what I do, it, a lot of it is the design work. And so sometimes I'm doing pieces that need to look like something that already exists or replace a piece that was broken on a, you know, say somebody's got a cupboard and there's a piece missing, I can carve to replace it and make it fit in. But a lot of the projects I do, people come and they want me to design something for them. So in this case, I'm trying to do something that's kind of in the 18th, 19th century period so it fits in with the rest of the room. Okay, let me get a closer look, if I can, of sure. these pieces over these here. These guys right here are um, half mermaids, half cherubs. Uh, they're grasping their, their pet sea monsters, and I haven't quite come to the expressions yet, but these guys are going to be brackets under a shelf so you can see that these are on this picture that's so there will be a shelf above them and you'll see them from across the room smiling or grimacing now deborah you carved that yes with your hands yes everything i do is very old school i was trained by a master wood carver in norway and he was i believe third generation and in fact, a lot of the tools that I have, um, Eric sent me home from Norway with them. And a lot of these have his initials carved into the handle and now my initials. And so yes, I'm using the same tools that people have been using for thousands of years. They, they've changed very little. Mallet and, and chisel and gouge. And that's, that's how we do it. Did you specifically go to Norway to be trained, or were you living in Norway at the time? I was lucky. I was living in Norway because my husband had accepted a job there, and he was a fluent Norwegian speaker as an Italian-American, go figure, only in America. And uh, I didn't speak a word when we moved there, but after two years, I went out to the Viking Ships Museum where I had, I had read about this master carver and just had the fantastic luck of him taking a shine to me and taking me under his wing and teaching me everything I know. What inspired you to start doing woodwork? 
I began at the Art Students League doing printmaking back in the early 80s, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was seeking my medium, and I had been doing woodcuts, and I liked cutting the wood, so I decided to try carving, and I went down to the basement there, and it was that eureka moment where I said, I found my medium. This is what I'm supposed to do, and I've been doing it ever since. What do you get out of working with your hands? It's hard to put in words, and I'm hoping that it comes out in, in the objects. I'm hoping that the, the objects speak for me. But there's, uh, there's something about working in a tradition that is so old. I mean, we as human beings, we've been making things out of wood and stone and the most basic materials with our hands from the time that we stood up and started walking on, on our back legs, I think. So there's a connection to us as a species, and there's, it sounds corny, but there's a, there's a very spiritual element to this. To carve is a very long, it, it's, a, it's a series of strokes, and it takes a long time to, to, to make, a little bit of progress takes a long time when you're doing it by hand this way. And yet there's something about that space where your mind clears, the, the, that inner voice, the chatter stills, there's this silence, and um, you're conjuring something. You're conjuring something from this material. The Romans had a word for spirits that lived in things and places called numens. And when I saw that word, I said, that's it. That's what I'm doing. I'm conjuring. I'm coaxing numens out of the wood because they're in there. There's, there's, there's a spirit that you feel in this living material. Because even after a tree is felled, it's still alive. It still breathes, it still expands and contracts, and there's something holy in it. I don't know what it is, but it, it feeds me. So what kind of wood are you using to make these mermaid cherubs? This project is in cherry. If you look around my studio, you can see I've carved in uh, beech. I think this guy is beech. Um, basswood, which is something like lindenwood. Walnuts, beautiful. Uh, Mahogany is beautiful. Um, oak. Uh, those guys are oak. It's, it's just basically, it's all carvable, it seems. This work is so detailed, it's so intricate. How much patience do you need to have for this kind of work? For wood carving, for traditional wood carving, it, patience is a virtue. And I'm somebody who, who can, I'm not good at multitasking, but I'm very good at going in, 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 and doing one thing for many hours and, and, and getting a lot out of that. So yes, patience is a, is a great virtue in carving. I would think that one wrong chisel and boom, you have to start all over again, am I right? Well, that was one of my questions to the master when I was studying with him. Uh, I said, Eric, what do I do when I make a mistake? And he said, ah, Deborah, shabara deepera. He's just carved deeper. And I thought he was pulling my leg, but over the years I realized, you know, unless it's something that has to absolutely match something that already exists, you do, you, you go with it. You, Wood has its own little opinions, and if you cross it, a piece will pop off. And um, I tend to go rather slowly to avoid that happening, but you know, sometimes you can glue a piece back on. I've had a piece that the client said, oh, I don't like the expression on the lion's face. And then you had, you know, we had to just basically take away the carving and glue in a block and recarve it, and then he was happy. So it's doable. Are you doing most of your sketching by hand, or do you use computer graphics? I'm almost always, it's all by hand, really. Although sometimes I'll start with small sketches, and I'll scan them, and I'll blow them up to see what's, what are the rough sketches looking like. Because then I can do a million little sketches, and then blow them up and say, oh, that's kind of, and then I'll sketch over it. And so 
tracing paper comes into it a lot because I'll start with something and then I'll layer over and I'll redraw it and then I'll erase and I'll redraw. So there's a lot of redrawing, but it's almost all by hand. Do you ever think about how important your hands are? I'm looking at your hands right now. <laughs> yeah, I have to remind myself sometimes, don't, uh, don't overdo it here or there because then you won't be able to finish that piece that you're behind on already. So, <laughs> yes. Have you ever encountered a hand injury that knocked you out of work for a while? No, so far, knock on wood. I've been very lucky so far. No. Knock on wood. I guess coming from you, that really means something. Oh, and I do it. I touch wood. I touch wood all the time. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming. Deborah Mills is a wood sculptor. She also teaches traditional wood carving out of her Long Island City studio. You can learn more at DebraMillsWoodCarving.com. Graciela Fuentes is another craftswoman, although her foundation is silver and bronze as opposed to wood. She's the founder of Tirana Jewelry in Brooklyn, and she joins me now on the phone. Graciela, welcome. Yes, thank you for, for having me. How would you describe your jewelry? My jewelry line is based on antiques that I collect. I'm a huge uh, antique collector, and I like to travel around the world and find pieces that I can make jewelry out of and that can become meaningful to to people because each piece has a, a story, you know, a story of where it came from, a story of having been um, an object that had a different use in the past. So they become little sculptures, uh, little metallic collages that carry the meaning of having had a past life. So what kind of jewelry do you make specifically? Are they bracelets? Are they brooches? Are they all of the above? They're all of the above. I, I make brooches, bracelets, necklaces. I also uh, make engagement rings and wedding bands, actually. Where do you get the materials to make your jewelry? Well, like I said, most of the objects that I find, I, um, you know, I find with antique dealers. And then what I do is I make molds. For example, I have a collection that is based on Victorian pocket watches. And I found most of the watches in London with a, with a dealer of Victorian watches. And then I take them apart, I make molds, and then I have them cast in sterling silver or brass. And to make the molds and do the casting, I work with artisans in New York in the jewelry district. So um, I have a, a team of people that I work with that I'm very lucky to have found through the years. So each piece is, you know, like I said, cast in with recycled metals, post-consumer recycled metals, and then assembled in my studio in Brooklyn. Besides antique pocket watches, what other types of materials do you work with? I also work with scissors miniature scissors from dollhouses, which I have found are, um, you know, they have a very specific connotation because scissors used to be something in, um, you know, in Victorian times that was passed generation to generation. It was a very important tool for women, you know, to make crafts and keep the home going, basically. So it was, it was an important tool and it was passed, you know, mother to daughter and so I, I use that uh, little symbol, and uh, I make a lot of different pieces, bracelets, rings, necklaces that have that motif. I also work with old keys and keyholes. How intricate a process is it to make your jewelry? It's extremely intricate because, I mean, first I have to find, you know, a piece, and then I sketch what I want to make with it. Then, uh, for example, I have this um, this bracelet composed of scissors, and um, so I had to find the right scissor to 
that, that had the right thickness, and then I made a mold. I cast about 20 of them. I soldered them all together. Then I shaped them into a bracelet. Then I make another mold. Then they get cast. Then, you know, it's adjusted for sizing. And then there's another mold made and then a final cast. So there is a lot of work in finding out the right molds, finding out the right sizes, finding out the right shapes, basically, for what I want to make. It's not that easy to make something into um, an ordinary object, make it into jewelry, and have it fit the body. You know, there is a lot of adjustments that need to be made. How did you get into the jewelry-making business, specifically making this kind of jewelry? Well, uh, my background is in sculpture, actually. I, um, I studied sculpture in Mexico, where I'm from, carving stones and, and metalwork. And um, I was doing photography and video for a while in New York, and I was having an urge to make things with my hands. And the first piece of jewelry that I made was a ring that I carved out of alabaster. And when I started wearing it, other people will ask me about it, and I start making some for my friends, and then I started making more and more, and then for friends of friends, and then people started commissioning me to make uh, wedding bands and engagement rings, and pretty much the business started, and because I have had had this passion for collecting antiques, I already had a lot of objects that I wanted to make into jewelry or make into these little sculptures that could be worn as jewelry. So this is pretty much how it started. How did you settle in Williamsburg, Brooklyn? I've been living here so uh, for a few years, for about ten years, and it, um, you know, so when I started my studio, it was just uh, a very natural thing to to do to start it there. But now I realize that it's, um, you know, it's a place where a lot of things are happening. It's, there's a very active, creative community. And it's very um, inspiring to to be in that in that area of Brooklyn, just because there is a lot of designers, a lot of artists. I actually share my studio with other designers, so having that community is really important to me. What's the meaning behind the name of your collection, Tirana Jewelry? Tirana actually means female tyrant in Spanish, and it uh, used to be a DJ um, about almost 10 years ago, and that was my DJ name. Female tyrant. And, yeah. Well, um, well Tirana, um, it's based on a song. There is a very uh, campy 70s song called Tirana del Amor, uh, you know, the tyrant of love. And so my name was based on that, on that song. It was a little bit of a joke. Then it, it became a more uh, serious thing. You know, it just... The name stuck with me, and, and then I kind of liked it, you know, because I think it, uh, to me now, it has the meaning of, um, you know, a very empowered woman or, you know, a woman that, um, that knows what she, what she believes in or is inspired by her strength. So. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, George. Graciela Fuentes is the founder of Tirana Jewelry. You can see her work at tiranajewelry.com. That's T-I-R-A-N-A jewelry.com. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening all over this land. I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out warning. I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters. Oh. 
You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're talking with the makers of handmade goods and exploring the culture that surrounds them. Creating a community that brings creators and consumers together is important to Ronan Glimmer, co-founder of Artists and Fleas, a gathering of local vendors in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and Chelsea Market in Manhattan. He joins me now on the phone. Ronan, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Happy to be here. First of all, what's the history behind Artists and Fleas? Artists and Fleas was started 10 years ago in a warehouse in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, by my wife and myself as a way to bring together a community of artists, designers, makers, vintage collectors, anyone who sort of had a hobby or a passion and wanted a place to try it out um, in a low-key kind of community-minded environment. What inspired the idea, though? My Amy and I, my wife, we've always, we love to travel, we love markets, and we love stuff. And we thought that was missing in some way, shape, or form back then in Brooklyn. Obviously, there were the Chelsea uh, flea markets, and flea markets have always been sort of an awesome part of New York City's culture and fabric. But we felt in 2003 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, there were a lot of creative people, but they didn't have a venue to sell. And we wanted to create a place where we could bring everyone together to show and sell and meet their market for a weekend day. How much has Artists and Fleas grown in the last 10 years? Oh, boy, a lot. Uh, I think in general, the generally speaking, the, the culture of sort of makers and independent artists being socially accepted in terms of being in business for themselves and, being, and, and not having to work a traditional 9-to-5 desk job, like the, the fact that that universe has really radically shifted um, has in part helped fuel this whole this, this bigger movement of, of makers and independent creatives. Um, Artists and Fleas has similarly both benefited from and contributed to, I think, that, that broader social phenomenon. Now you're not just in Williamsburg, you're also at Chelsea Market, too, in Manhattan. That's right. Two years ago, in response to kind of our own sort of soul-searching, um, and just sort of like taking the pulse of the broader community uh, of vendors and sellers who were kind of itching to do something more, we started to explore venues and opportunities that might make sense. I used to live around the block from Chelsea Market when it opened in the mid-90s, and I had always been a fan of that place, and it's changed a lot in the in the 20 years since it's opened. Um, but it, it very much sort of like fosters this spirit of independent entrepreneurs and being really committed to incubating this creative class and this creative community. So by chance, I walked in one day, met the, the event uh, manager, Michael Ginsburg, who happens to live around the corner from Artisan Fleas and has lived there for 10 years in Williamsburg. We got to talking, and there was a space that they were just converting into retail, an old, an old loading dock. And, you know... Chelsea Market, the, the operators of Chelsea Market are savvy real estate entrepreneurs, and, and the business did not require or the, the building didn't need, didn't, I, didn't need all the space dedicated to, uh, you know, to loading dock and manufacturing because it's really about retail. And uh, they gave us a shot at popping up uh, two Decembers ago, and we've been there in and out ever since. Now, as you know, this particular episode of Cityscape is about handmade things. So what vendors making things by hand stand out most to you? I think what's, what's interesting is, is when I look back across 10 years, we've seen a, a real evolution in terms of styles and tastes. I mean, six, 
some six years ago, I think the Mass Brothers, who I think very much epitomize handcrafted, handmade, made locally, you know, made in the USA, made in Brooklyn. You know, they set up shop at Artisan Fleas when we were on North 6th Street. For the most part, we have clothing designers, jewelry designers, accessory makers, and, you know, people who have merch, who have stuff, as opposed to food. I think that when it comes to, to handmade, we very much look for people who have a strong point of view and a strong craft. And by craft, I mean not crafty, you know, like the stuff of craft fairs, but really people who've kind of evolved and are, are sophisticated or are, or are emerging in their, in their craft. And I think you see that in terms of price points, in terms of materials, in terms of the level of seriousness with which many of these artists are pursuing their work. How many of the vendors that work with you go on to the retail market, whether that be starting their own retail establishments or just getting their products inside stores? You know, I don't know. I don't know by numbers necessarily, but I would say that easily the majority of our sellers have the opportunity, whether they choose to convert and and, and exploit it or not, is is up to them but have the opportunity to be picked up by a retailer to get products into a MoMA design store or to be sold into an anthropology or an urban outfitter or to create a limited edition collaboration with another major retailer. And and I'm just thinking in terms of brick and mortar. Obviously, there's tons of online venues and avenues, the the other kinds of the world, the fabs, fab.coms, which kind of have have peaked and are now, I suppose, a little bit on on their decline. But I think that a lot of our a lot of our handmade makers and artisans have they continue to have a presence at Artisan Fleas, but their business has really grown exponentially in terms of wholesale channels, other retail outlets, other markets, and and just more venues through the connections that they've made and through the the, 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 the sort of broader social forces at play in terms of people who are shoppers who are eager for something that's unique handmade, one-of-a-kind. What's your take on the significance of handmade products in today's mass-produced world, if you will? I have two perspectives or two thoughts on this. One is that I really believe that people, that, that we're a consumer culture, and I don't say that disparagingly. I think I think the reality is we that there's a certain level of retail therapy that happens, and we're defined very much by what we own, by what we wear, by what we share with our friends. And I think that it's a way for us to express our individuality, uh, individualism, rather, and to be able to know the story, the source, the maker, the history of that piece is is what really makes the handmade universe so appealing. So that's you know that's kind of my that's my abstract uh, worldview on all of that. And then I think there's also just a broad, a bigger sort of blowback to big box retailers and the you know and people who want to purchase with a conscience, who want to shop local, who want to be able to support their friends, their neighbors, their their relatives, people who are really fueling the local economy and not feel like what they're buying, forget about the quality that might be manufactured elsewhere, has has a way of actually giving back and pouring back into this sort of, you know, shop local uh, movement. Ronan, thanks so much for your time. 
My pleasure. Thank you. That was Ronan Glimmer. He and his wife, Amy Abrams, are co-founders of Artists and Fleas in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and Chelsea Market in Manhattan. Visit their website, artistsandfleas.com, for more information. Handmade doesn't always refer to what we use or wear or hang on our walls. Beecher's Handmade Cheese has spent over a decade perfecting their craft. I talked with their production manager, Dan Utano. So how long have you been involved in the cheese-making business, Dan? I've been involved in the cheese-making business for about four years. I've worked with Beecher's for three and a half. How did you get involved with cheese-making? Originally, I was uh, a cheesemonger. I was selling cheese. Uh, it was my, my college summer job and my after-summer job. Read a lot of books, met a lot of people, and became interested in, in the craft of making cheese. What is involved with making cheese? What's the process like? It's, it's a pretty tedious process. Obviously, we start with the milk, and we have good quality, fresh milk. We have our, our cultures, which is essentially our, our literally bacteria that uh, ferments our milk and defines what our cheese is going to be. And uh, then there's a number of different nuances, different techniques for different cheeses. And so there's uh, a lot of different steps per what kind of cheese you're making. Is one type of cheese more complicated to make than another? Yeah, you could say that. Uh, there's certainly some pretty simple cheeses, mozzarella, ricotta. Uh, those can be pretty basic. Um, we're doing uh, a lot more aged cheeses, kind of like similar to cheddar, gruyere. Uh, it involves a lot of different processes, a lot of different steps. Uh, it's definitely a more physical process. Probably takes about five to six hours to make one batch of cheese, so it's a little more labor intensive than some. How much is in a batch? Right now, we're able to do, produce about uh, 34 to 35 blocks of cheese. Uh, each block of cheese is about 40 pounds each. How much cheese do you produce a day here at Beecher's? On a typical day, we're doing four batches of cheese, so uh, you know, we're cranking out about 130 blocks of cheese. When does the cheese making start in the morning? Uh, it starts about 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, first person's in the door around 2, 2.30, and milk truck pulls up around 3. Uh, Best time to get the truck in and get them in and out. And, uh, you know, if we're making cheese four times a day, uh, we're running almost 24 hours. Now, I should point out that the milk is local milk, right? It comes from a farm here in New York. Yeah, well, both we're getting milk from two farms. Uh, and they're both right down the road from each other, and they're just a little south of Albany. So the milk is coming from about two, two and a half hours away and comes fresh every morning. Is that what it comes down to for good cheese, the quality of the milk, do you think? Quality of milk is the most important foundation of making good cheese. Uh, you really can't make good cheese if you start with poor quality milk. How many different types of cheeses do you make here? Uh, we make a few different types. Uh, we make our main cheese, which is flagship, and that is our you know, flagship cheese. That's our signature cheese. And that's a combination of cheddar and gruyere. And we make a couple different types of cheese that stem off of that. We make a couple flavored types. Uh, one is called Marco Polo, with peppercorns in it. Another is called No Woman, that has Jamaican, uh, Jamaican jerk seasoning in it. And then we also make a cheese called Dutch Hollow Dulcet, uh, which is a, um, what's known as a wash curd style cheese. Uh, we add cream to that, so it's actually a double cream. And uh, it's named after one of our farms, Dutch Hollow Farm. Your cheesemakers are on full display here. They are in a fishbowl. Everyone can watch them make the cheese. Why is that important? It goes part of our philosophy, and uh, our company's motto is changing the way America eats. And part of that is understanding where your food comes from, opening up 
the windows and a display to look in and understand how we make the food, how we make our cheese. Uh, you know, part of it is understanding pure natural foods and being able to just have windows on that, cards face up. Anybody can look in and see exactly what goes into making our cheese. Having moved from someone who sold cheese to someone who now makes cheese, what has surprised you most about the process of handmade cheese? I think learning about selling cheese, you learn a lot about the history, maybe a fun story about the cheese, and of course you learn about the flavor profiles. And, uh, you know, there's some cheesemongers who really get into learning about how it's made, but I think a lot don't. At least when I was a cheesemonger, I didn't really know a ton about what went into it. I just knew it was a, a technical process and there's, you know, some science involved in it. Really uh, learning, reading textbooks as a cheesemonger, it was, you know, like trying to read Chinese. Um, and it wasn't until I really started doing it hands-on that I started putting together uh, really everything that goes into from start to finish the, the entire process. All right, Dan, anything else about the cheese making business that you would want to add? You know, it's just a, it's a laborious process and, um, you know, it's a, it's a product of care and love and, you know, everybody who comes in here and makes cheese here, we, we put a lot of care into it, a lot of emotion, a lot of sweat, you know, and it's a product uh, we're ultimately incredibly proud of. All right, Dan, thanks so much for your time. Great, thank you. That was Dan Utano of Beecher's Handmade Cheese. They're online at beechershandmadecheese.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org cityscape. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Veronica Volk. Have a great weekend. Make it, do it, makes us It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.